Hey everybody, how's it going? I am Chase Jarvis and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. This is where I sit down with the world's top creators and entrepreneurs and thought leaders and do my very best to unpack their brains with the goal of helping you live your dreams and career in hobby and in life. My guest today is Joe Jebbia. That's right. Joe, you know him as the co-founder and chief product officer at Airbnb. Wow, what a transformation of an entire industry that company has has brought about. They are valued today, I just looked it up, at $31 billion. That's right, that's billion with a B. But this isn't Joe's first rodeo. Um, he's been an amazing advocate of design, design thinking, and of entrepreneurship, uh, creative entrepreneurship, since his kiddom, since his childhood. Uh, he's channeled that passion into dang near everything he's done from uh, his college side hustle, a great story in the podcast, college side hustle of selling specialty seat cushions for those uncomfortable stools in art school, um, a little funny business called, God, what was that called? I forget. You'll have to listen to the episode. Um, he's also had a furniture company called Neighborhood, so many great side projects, but embedded in everything that Joe thinks, says, does, you can just smell, feel design, design thinking and entrepreneurship oozing out of his veins. And this show is not easy to pull together. And we've been working on it for about six months. Joe's a busy guy, but I'm really, really happy we had him. And so show is on fire. And his career is like, it's the perfect proof point, one massive proof point for so many of the things that we talk about on this show, especially one of the things that I think Joe really embodies is the idea that stamina wins. He's had so many projects going, and he sounds like so many of the readers and listeners to this show, when I speak to you on your daily creative or in person, we're all, we've all got a lot of irons in the fire. Joe epitomizes that, that lifestyle, the effort, and how just being in the game helps one win. You know, so many of his successes have, have come from just persisting when others would have given up. When he's, you know, literally refused to take no for an answer and has just grounded out until something has happened. And in this particular episode, he shows us a couple, he gives us, I guess, a couple of really specific examples where I think by almost every measure, most folks would have given up. And it's just that extra little crack. I love this episode for that. But this is how it happens, folks. It's hard work. And I don't want to just beat the hard work drum. Uh, and I think that's, we get beyond just the hard work into this show with Joe. Um, we also talk about uh, just a handful of things here to give you a little preview, uh, the role of sports in Joe's life and how in so many ways they paved uh, his way, his path to be an artist and entrepreneur. Of course, I love this uh, as a sort of a, a former high-performing athlete myself. I think there's a lot of folks who, and it doesn't have to be competitive sports either, how how sports in general helps a really, really interesting, puts a, put an interesting perspective on what it is to be a creator and an entrepreneur. So many of Joe's biggest moments have come from doing what I call the other 50%, another great takeaway from the show. That is the, the promotional side, the being a part of the community. We, we talked about uh, the story of him meeting Brian Chesky, the co-founder of Airbnb, and starting a college basketball team. His uh, college didn't have a team, and they started one. It started out as intramural, and then 
They literally like created one, RISD, where he went to school, by engaging his community. Uh, and that's the part of that other 50% that so many entrepreneurs that I see, they forget. They think it's just about making products and then trying to promote them. You have to participate in the community. And Joe, exemplary in this in this point. And we talked a lot about pushing past the no. I, I like to think of no as never a no, but it's really a not yet in the world of entrepreneurship. Um, and anyone who wants to be a creator, an entrepreneur, um, you've heard this so many times and, and uh, we're told to get used to it, that our ability to push through that, push beyond it. It's not about ignoring, no. It's about unpacking and understanding how to get to a deliberate Yes, in a thoughtful and strategic way. So many other things. Uh, I should shut up and get you into the episode. It's a doozy. I know you're going to love it. Make sure to uh, you know give a shout out to Joe on social if you can. Let him know that you love the show. Uh, it's time to get into the show now. But before we do, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by my friends at FreshBooks. FreshBooks are a cloud-based accounting software and it's designed specifically for you and me. That's right, for freelancers, solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, and the self-employed. Very stoked to have these guys on board. If you want to get your accounting on Rails, then I encourage you to check out FreshBooks. And importantly, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted trial for free to anyone who listens to this show. In order to claim it, go to freshbooks.com chase. And where it says, how did you hear about us? Enter the Chase Jarvis show in that little slot there, and you will have access to that free trial. That's one sponsor. Today, we have another one. The show is also brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. How are you? Good to see you. How about it? Yeah, it's good to be here. Been a long time in the making. That's right. I'm gonna tell a funny backstory. We were gonna do this two days ago, and I got a, a text or an email from you at <laughs> five in the morning, said my plane just landed five hours late. He was supposed to come in at like 10 in the morning. We, we let him go back to sleep. You made it. Well, you, we, you we look did. rested. I, I feel fresh. You do? I'm, you I've look got, great. I, I'm ready to tell some stories. Awesome. Share some lessons, all um, of the above. Thank you for being on the show. Thank I you for having really, me. Uh, well, before we started the cameras rolling, um, I was just pontificating for a second about how you as a human, I feel like, mm. epitomize so many aspects of the show, um, has a, a, a career, you went to college as a, as a, you went to RISD, right, is that right? That's right. Yeah, you went to RISD, um, designer, and then this, you know, you had an idea, you chased the idea, struggle, it's like, it's, it's very much the hero's journey, and it's, if we did anything today, it would be, A, of course, I want to know some things you haven't said elsewhere in the world, mm. but also to help the folks at home understand that, A, it's hard, B, success comes from hard work and grit and the grind, and then C, we do want to hear a couple of the stories that you like, the holy shit, we're, we're making it. So I got a little bit of an arc I want to cover for the show, um, but start off with, you know, for the like three out of the million people that are going to see this, who doesn't know you? Give us the backstory. Like, 
young you. <laughs> Give us the young you. I don't. Little, I mean, little entrepreneur Joe. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Were you an entrepreneur? Actually, you, you know, my first business was selling drawings of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to my second grade classmates for a dollar or two dollars if you wanted the big version. No and, way. Yeah, and it was I doing it. so well that uh, the the parents of the students were. Um, getting complaints because their, their children were asking for extra lunch money. Yeah. And so they complained to the teachers, they're like, why is my student asking for extra lunch money? And then they traced it back to me and they, they, they shut the business down at the time. <laughs> the, the, regulator, the regulations. The regulators, they, they swooped in and they. <laughs> the regulations on had drawings. You, had you pay your taxes <laughs> yeah. in second grade? Second grade. Oh, man. Um, but, I, I, you know. There where was, was that? And it was, give me a little childhood. Where, where in the world was uh, that? I grew happening? up in the Deep South. Okay. Atlanta, uh, Georgia? Snellville, which is near Lawrenceville, which is near Lilburn, which is near Norcross, which is kind of close to Atlanta. <laughs> so um, it was wow. a great, great southern town in the suburbs of, of Atlanta. And, um, you know, just kind of always uh, was looking for opportunities to start things. You know, whether it was the drawings, I had a first lawnmower business, I'm sure, you know, at some point. Everyone in the suburbs, you all, those, right? everyone has a lawnmower right. business. <laughs> um, and then getting into high school, um, found all kinds of opportunities to to bring ideas to life. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like that's, that's my life story is just, you know, the gift of, of having an idea go from a sketchbook and, and to see it become reality, I mean, I don't, there's nothing, nothing greater than that. Well, on the journey toward, we have a couple swaths of audience, zero to one, people are trying to figure out what they want to do mm-hmm. or do they have enough chutzpah to do the thing that, not, not the thing that their parents and their friends and, the, and culture expects of them. Mm-hmm. And then there are people who are on a path but they're trying to, get from one or two or five to 10 to um, you know, create companies and things as you have. And when you were younger, did you identify with this creative spirit? And clearly you were um, hustling and entrepreneurial in your second grade class, but was it always something that you knew that that was a piece of you? Did you grow up around art and design? Did, did you find it? Did it find you? Help us understand that. Well. Um there is uh, literally zero art talent in my, my family. Maybe that's not my grandfather. Um, but I, I did have the, the chance to grow up very much into art. Mm-hmm. So I spent my, my childhood drawing, painting, um, taking art classes at every turn. Wow. On weekends, I'd go down to the Atlanta College of Art and take figure drawing classes. You know, I was definitely the youngest guy there. Wow. Um, I did a summer program in the state of Georgia uh, called Governor's Honors, which was about celebrating different disciplines, science, art, music, et cetera. Um, and it was during that, that summer where I really fell in love with art. And the, the instructors, the college level instructors said, Joe, like, you, you've got something here. This is something to pursue. Wow. Um, that's when I first heard about the Rhode Island School of Design. They suggested I take a look into it. I did a summer program there the year later as a junior in high school. And I absolutely fell in love, not only with Providence, but with art school and, and this idea that like, art is just a channel to take an idea that you have and find an outlet. And it could be painting, a drawing, a sculpture, a photograph. Yep. Um, as you know, like it could be any kind of medium. Uh, and I feel like you know, there is a, a nice Venn diagram of, of art and entrepreneurship yep. in the sense that you have to imagine something that doesn't yet exist and then have the willpower to bring it to life. That's uh, you know, one of the things that I, I find when you said there's like not a history of, of art or creativity or whatever in your family. Mm-hmm. And A, that great creators can be born of families or out of a heritage where that wasn't the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, 
and vice versa that you know folks that for whom that is the way they grew up sometimes they we all revolt against it and whatnot it's my personal belief as you probably know from previous episodes the show that there's creativity inside of every person absolutely but that it's not fostered and we sort of train it out of people rather than cultivate it or we're not even neutral towards it you know if you say hey mom I want to when I grow up I want to <laughs> I want to be a, a dancer I think culturally speaking that's like oh my parents are like okay great I'm, I'm seeing all these things in the world about stem and steam if you're lucky but it's like we need science we need computer programmers we need I don't even mind if you're a tradesman you're gonna build stuff mm -hmm. but I don't know dancer musician whatever these things tend to be um, culturally less poignant maybe for our parents. Did you feel any of that pressure? And if so, or did you just, did you manage to escape it based on having thoughtful, heartfelt, warm, caring family? Or what was the, what was the secret for you to tap into it? I'm forever grateful to my parents. I mean, they really supported me, whatever my interests. Yep. I played a lot of sports growing up. I was into music, playing piano, uh, and certainly the art track. You know, they never really second-guessed. They're like, well, should we really support them and, and fund that you know, weekend class downtown yeah. um, for figure drawing? Um, they really got behind whatever my passions were, and I think, yeah. thank goodness, because I had very talented friends in art whose yeah. parents didn't. Yeah. So they had to be an engineer or go into professional service, and uh, they never really got to see their gifts, their artistic gifts, come to life. Um, and I remember in high school just feeling very, very blessed, very lucky that... Um, the kind of the windows in my sail. Yeah, you knew you had something, and you were told clearly from other folks in the, that summer program that you had some talent. Yeah, you know, you sort of, you know, you're searching for yourself, certainly in high school, right? It's like, yeah. okay. big decisions, like college, finding a, like a career, yeah. um, uh, maybe leaving home for the first time. So there's, there's a lot of like life questions that have to be answered, and I think um, for me it was, uh, I was on a path to become a fine artist. So I applied to RISD and I got in. And as a, on the path, one of the things that I love about the path is if you're always pursuing the thing that feels right, then you're on the path. It, doesn't, it might not be the path where you end up, and, and I don't know if you identify as a fine artist right now, or like, like, but that was the thing that you went to RISD to pursue, and then here you are something, not, not a fine artist, but you, let's say you got distracted on this little, <laughs> this little other side journey There's here. There's a parenthesis in there. Yeah, there's a parenthesis in there. It's a big-ass, multi-billion-dollar parenthesis. But um, you know, how, did, you, did you ever question the path that you're on? Did you, you, know, did you identify with it? What, what about this other entrepreneurial thing that you yeah. got, got into? Well, I think another reference point that, that factors in here is when I was in high school from 1996 to 2000, okay. which was the birth of the Internet. Yep. And every day I'd come home after school and I would teach myself HTML and CSS. And the notion that you could have an idea and you could code it and publish it to the world completely captivated me. Yeah. There was something enthralling about that. And it left this deep, deep impression with me. Um, as I read about other compa companies that were starting, you know, every day I'd read Business 2.0 and ZNet and ZNet, all, ZDNet, all of them. And, all the roads of these companies led back to one place, San Francisco or Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, like, man, I, I know one day I have this inclination, I, I want to run a, a company of some kind, I want to you know, run my own business, whatever it might be. Uh, it sure seems like the best place to do that is this part of the West Coast. Where everybody seems to be coming from, <laughs> right. right? It's this hotbed. So um, you have to, that was very active in the back of my mind. Um, and then you know, I had a chance to go to Providence to, to study fine arts. Uh, 
And when I got to campus, um, he, he, so here's, uh, here's the story. I get to campus, and during orientation, you're meeting the upperclassmen, and they're asking, oh, who are your teachers? And so I go through the list of my instructors, and I get to this one name. And when I get to this name, I have the same reaction from every upperclassman. I say, Gareth Jones, and they go, oh, no, oh, no, not Gareth Jones. And I go, what? What is it? And they go, just wait. So my very first college course is with this guy, Gareth Jones. Um, I roll into the art studio with you know, 18 other freshmen. We literally just got to campus. And this guy walks out, this British fellow with this really big hair, black turtleneck, black pants, and he stands in the front of the class, in front of all of us, and he goes, I just want you all to know that half of you are going to fail my course. One of these guys. Because you won't finish the chess set project. And we're like, what the F is the chess set project? Okay. So he went to explain, and we found out that there's this, you have your weekly assignments, okay. and then on top of that, you have this semester-long assignment where you have to choose a three-dimensional artist, a sculptor, a fashion designer, an architect, a furniture designer. You have to find a book on them, pick pieces of their design or their sculpture, and then recreate them in miniature scale. So if you chose like uh, Henry Moore, yep. right, the sculptor, mm -hmm. you'd find Henry Moore sculptures and you have to recreate them. You do it in the numbering format of a chess set. So you take one sculpture and you reproduce it eight times for your pawn. Pick another one, you reproduce it twice for your rook, your uh, knights, your bishops, your king, and your queen. So overall, it's 16 pieces. They don't look like chess pieces. They look like the actual reproductions of the sculpture. You have to look at a photo wow. and translate that. Right? And this is on top of all the weekly assignments. This is like an outside class project. Wow. And as you got to know Gareth, you got to know this very opinionated fellow who uh, always had to be right. He would argue you to the death. And so I made a decision very early on that no matter what I did, I would finish this project. Okay. I was not going to fail out. Um, so I had an interest in furniture design at this time, and I discovered a guy from the early 20th century named Garrett Rietveld. He's a, a Dutch designer, uh, architect, um, and he did a couple of very famous chairs in the MoMA, for example. And I fell in love with his work, and I thought, you know, I'm going to spend this whole semester fully dedicated to these chairs. I don't want to make small chairs. I want to make full-size chairs. <laughs> Oh, right? Like, I'm going to put all my effort in. I want to use these afterwards. And so here I go to my Gareth, the teacher, and I pitch him on this idea. And I expect him to say, yeah, Joe, you got this. I'm behind you. Yeah. He looks at me and goes, Joe, I really don't think you can get it done. Really focus on the smaller scale. And he walked away. And I was like, that's it. <laughs> Throw down. <laughs> I'm going to prove this guy wrong. I've got a semester to figure out how to make chairs. By the way, I'd never like, worked with any kind of hand tools, definitely no heavy machinery, never made a chair in my life. Amazing. More or less these like, really intricate, uh, famous chairs. But I was like, I'm committing to this. I'm going to figure this out. So wow. how do you make a chair? Well, I, there's a furniture design department on campus. I ran to the department. I met with the department head, sat with her, and pitched her on what I was doing. She said, oh, go talk to these three seniors. They'll help you out. So these seniors showed me how to work with wood. They gave me access to the wood shop on campus. And piece by piece, I started to actually figure out how to make chairs. The thing is, I didn't show Gareth anything during the course of the semester. Right? So he's asking me you know, check-ins, like, how's it going, Joe? I'm like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, so uh, along the way, I got to the, the pond, where you had to make eight of the same. Yep. 
and Garrett Rietveld had this beautiful bench design, just four pieces of wood, um, but it was big. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't have the money to buy the wood to make eight of these ginormous benches. What am I gonna do? And it's around this time I'm in the, uh, the uh, courtyard section of the dorms, and I'm noticing that everyone's smoking outside, and they're standing up, because there's nowhere to sit. And I'm like, wait, what if the school pays for the wood, I make the benches for my project, and then they put these benches in this courtyard so people can sit down when they want to have a smoke break. I pitched the school and they loved it. What? So the school funds a few thousand dollars of this inch-thick plywood. I mean, this is like heavy-duty stuff. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, a few weeks later, I've got eight benches and the other eight pieces, and I stored them all in a, a certain uh, part of campus. And uh, on the final day of class, now a whole semester has gone by, uh, I've been up for two days straight. I haven't slept. I'm up for like 54 hours working the final, you know, sanding, putting the final finish on these chairs. Wow. And um, the class goes out for lunch, and I specifically signed up for the next slot. So when everyone was away getting lunch, a couple of my, my roommates and buddies helped me carry all these chairs into the studio space. So when everybody walked back in, there was this full set of 16 full-size functional chairs. And my only regret is that I didn't have a photo of Gareth Jones's face when he walked into the studio after lunch. This is literally what he, he walks in and he goes, and you can see him counting, 16. And then he looks at me and it was beautiful. He goes, Joe, you've done it. You've proved me wrong. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> okay, I never do another thing in my life. You still have these pieces of furniture? I do, I do. Yes. These, are, um, these are so s symbolic to me because, I mean, literally, to go from no knowledge yeah. and no expertise in something to, you know, 12 weeks later, you've done, quote, impossible. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, it was one of those life moments. Yeah. You know, we all have those moments where you... you so powerful. You break through. You, yeah. you cross some threshold of what you think is possible for yourself and you get to the other side and, and you're standing physically with a room full of chairs that you made and, you know, or, or you got scrappy with and you figured out who would pay for it and who would help you build them. And it was this remarkable moment. And then after that, I, I promptly went to bed. <laughs> so really for another 54 hours, <laughs> yeah, probably, right? Just about. So un if you unpack that just for a second, yeah. are you stubborn as hell? Is that why you chose to do the thing? Are you, like, what is it about your personality? Because I think, you know, Gareth is probably right. When he sends that warning, 99 out of 100 students don't pursue the thing. Is, is that thing, that piece of you, the thing that you feel like has driven your success? Is it the stubbornness or is it, would you, because that's kind of a little bit of a negative connotation, or is it the pride that you take in a job well done? Is it curiosity? Um, that I wonder if I can do this. Um, fear of failure, fear of success. Like, what, what are, what's at play there for you, you think? Oh, man, that's such a good question. Um, I think it's, it's this deep desire to, to constantly get to the next level mm -hmm. with whatever it is. And I had this with sports, too. You know, um, a, a basketball coach in seventh grade gave me advice that I've carried through my entire life. He said, took me aside one day, because I just started playing basketball, and he goes, Joe. You're not very tall, Joe. <laughs> just heads up. At the time, I was, you know, comparatively, I was, okay. I was pretty tall. Um, but my, my sh shot wasn't quite on just yet, okay. like it is today. Um, <laughs> nice, correct. And <laughs> he took me aside, and he goes, Joe, you know, if you want to get better, 
play with people who are better than you. And since that moment, probably with anything I can think of in my life, I've always sought to throw myself into situations where I'm probably maybe one of the least knowledgeable in the room yeah. or you know, I have the least amount of experience. So I did, I started playing with upperclassmen in regards to basketball at the YMCA and at my high school. At the time, I was always playing with guys who were taller than me, stronger than me, had better skills than I did. Um, and I feel like that, just being thrown into an experience like that, it sort of, it forces, it's kind of sink or swim. Like it yeah. kind of forces you and you have to find the self-reliance inside of you to, to stay with it, yeah. to, to actually excel and get to the next level. And so, Were there things that you sunk at? Because you sink or swim, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, what were those things? When you threw yourself in the deep end and... Yeah, I mean, sure. There's been things that have come and gone. Um, uh, I don't know. I used to play violin when I was really little. That's no longer around. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that I was not good at. Threw yourself in the deep end or the violin. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So I think somewhere in there, a, it's a combination then of great advice yourself around that that seventh grade teacher had seventh grade is that right seventh yeah grade. a lot of wisdom in that very simple saying but there's also some grit in inside of you and the same grit that built 16 chairs in a semester um, is that is that your best quality is that a quality is that a quality that you see consistently with yourself and your peers what role and I'm just tight. I'm just naming this thing grit. Sure. Maybe you get a better name for it. But what role does that play in building a however many billion dollar company you guys are right now? I think there's a lot of answers to that question. Mm -hmm. um, one of the first things that comes to mind is, is perseverance. Yeah. I mean, any entrepreneur that's sat in this chair and talked to you has probably used that word. Yeah. Because when I feel like, as you know, like when you're trying to, to bring an idea into life, when you have a concept in your head that doesn't yet exist, and you're basically the only person that will will it into existence. Like there will be like every kind of obstacle in your way. Sometimes yourself, sometimes other people, sometimes resources, sometimes facilities or lack of facilities. And I think having a, a, um, a it's just this perseverance, this well of um, of a drive that allows you to just keep going, even when people say no, even when people say it can't be done. Which here's this professor who everybody looked up to. Yeah, he was notorious on campus. This guy was a legend. And he looked at me in the eye and said, I couldn't do it. And I thought, F you. Like, who are you yeah. to tell me if I can't or can't? I'll tell myself if I can't do something, not yeah. you. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, um, <laughs> quick, quick aside, I later caught up with him on campus. Um, it was about two years ago. So, you know, 12, 13 years later. And we reflected on this moment. And he, he uses me as a reference point ever since then with his class. Like, of course, right? dude built 16 chairs. <laughs> he was like the quintessential <laughs> answer to my project. Um, and I told him, like, Kath, like, well, you know, what was that about? Like, I really expected encouragement and support and, and uh, advocacy. And, and he looks at me and he goes, I knew you could do it. I just wanted to, I just wanted to give you the rub to get you going on it. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. Like, at the time, I didn't realize it. Sure. Um, but looking back, it makes a lot of sense. That great. I to me, that's a, a beautiful story because it reveals a lot about you. It reveals a lot about the character of art school, the character of the true mentors, people that can see potential. And um, but go ahead, keep going. No, you just had a big inhale. You're you, going to say well, something. Well, you, you just triggered something, which is yeah. um, the joy of not only that moment in that critique, that final critique with the chairs, yeah. the additional joy that came 
when I got to see other students sitting on those benches a week later, that triggered something else in me that I had never experienced before. That you could design things for other people and to see them interact with your creation, you know, in this case, the physical sense, I certainly had web design experience on the digital yeah, sense, but yeah. now to like bridge that to the physical world was like, oh my God, this is really exciting. Yeah. This is really fun. And so it was a combination of that moment of learning about Charles and Ray Eames and the, the, their lives as designers, of learning about the industrial design department on campus, mm -hmm. where I had this, this, this shift of this, this path that I was on, going back to paths, of being a fine artist, maybe living in New York City, exhibiting at galleries, suddenly it was about how could you use design to improve people's lives, just like the Eames had committed their lives to. Yeah. How could you use design to create these beautiful interactions with the people who use your products? Um, and so in those, you know, in those moments, I switched majors. That triggered something, and you were just triggered into that story, that triggered something in me, which I'd like to, you to reflect on just for a second. So it's the Eames quote that says, the details aren't the details, <laughs> the details are the thing. So what role has that quote played for you and how you approached um, Airbnb or furniture design? Like, sure. is, is that something that holds true to you? And, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I feel like ask any designer who cares about their craft and, yeah. and what they put out into the world, and they want to have pride in what they produce, um, I, I feel like they would wholeheartedly agree with that quote. Um, and I think if I reflect just on, on our company, on Airbnb, you know, we do put a lot of effort, probably more than what is asked of us, or more than what is necessary for, you know, uh, a site that does what we do. Uh, and I, I, have to, I have to reflect because um, as the internet has matured, I feel like, and as like technology and um, computers have matured, the playing field in my mind is largely leveled, yeah. right? Like what used to be a competitive advantage, whether that was you know, megahertz speed or screen size or whatever, RAM, like <laughs> everybody now has access to the same stuff. Yeah. So the, the tech playing field has largely leveled, which begs the question, how else do you differentiate? And the way that we've always thought about it is through design, right? Maybe the details can help us differentiate. Maybe our, our you know, in sometimes insane attention to details can help us elevate beyond you know, the, the rest of the noise in, 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 our, in our industry. And so um, I feel like that's, the details have been our differentiator. We're going to go back to RISD. Okay. You're in RISD. You're, you've just completed your project yeah. um, just for Gareth. <laughs> and the fact that his name is Gareth is just <laughs> yeah. so British, it's too. It's incredible. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I think he's actually Welsh. Oh, but, Welsh. Yeah. There you go. Even, even better. Um, more nuanced. But you meet a guy called Brian Chesky. That's right. How so, did that go down? Um, to understand that story, you need to understand that um, during orientation as a freshman, uh, there's somebody giving you know welcome to, to campus lecture, an upperclassman, and they made a comment that really stood out to me. They said, look to your left, look to your right. Those might be your future team members or your future employer. <laughs> so make sure you nurture your relationships while you're on campus here. Because you never know one day mm -hmm. who might be working for who or collaborating with who. And I thought, oh shit, he's right. Uh, like if I have this general idea, I want to start running my business one day. Um, I better turn my radar on to see who might uh, be a good you know, co-creator with me. Yeah. 
So all throughout campus, I, you know, every person I met, whether it was you know, explicit or implicit, in the back of my mind, I was just always thinking like, you know, is this somebody that I would love to start something with? Um, and you know, when I got to campus, um, here's another, another story that intersects into Brian. Uh, having played basketball, I get to RISD, I go into the office of student life one day, and I say, hey, I'd like to play in the basketball team. And the guy behind the front desk, God bless him, he gave me the blankest stare I've ever seen. He looks at me like this. He goes, we don't have a basketball team. And there was this weird, awkward silence where <laughs> I'm just, I'm staring at him, he's staring at me. Uh. And he breaks the silence by saying, but you can start one. And I go, really? What do I have to do? And he goes, find 12 other people on campus that want to play basketball. And I'm like, that's it? <laughs> well, and bring the list back to me. So I spent the next week rounding up 12 people who also played basketball. And I came back, gave him the list. I said, what's the next step? And he goes, well, you need to take this to the student board and get funding for it and get recognized as an organization. Here's this paperwork. So that Wednesday night, I went, got recognized as a group. And I came back to him and said, now what? And he said, well, we need to rent a gym and find a place to practice. And so I pieced this whole thing together. And by the end of that, that academic year, my freshman year, we had a basketball team. What? <laughs> Were you self-coaching? Like... Yes. Um, it was a player coach for the first year, year or so. Um, but what was actually unfolding and unfolded the next five years yeah. that I spent on campus was my first startup. You had to recruit a team. You had to raise funding. You had to create a brand. You had to market the brand. You had to run an operation, playing other teams, putting a schedule together. Um, you had to build a community of people who wanted to attend and be part of uh, the team. So I remember uh, now that we had a team, we were practicing, but we had no schedule. I started calling other colleges in New England, right? Like pitching them, like come play us in basketball. <laughs> That's amazing. And so I, I remember I the first story couple, about you. I love this. God, the first couple calls, I'll never forget because they were very short. <laughs> this is Joe. Uh, this is Joe calling from the Ron School Design basketball team. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> okay. People just hung up on me. However, I remember the first uh, coach that I spoke to who didn't hang up was from Clark University in Mass Western Massachusetts. And they didn't agree to play some basketball with their varsity team, but they said they'd send their JV team. I said, perfect, we'll play them. <laughs> so December 4th, 2001, uh, the RISD basketball team played the Clark University JV team. And when their bus showed up, they rolled into the, the high school gym that we were renting, because we didn't have one on campus. Yes. And I have to th say, every single player on their team was taller than our tallest player. <laughs> and they had it. three coaches, two assistant coaches, and then there's just me. And I think they, they arrived and they pretty quickly realized what they got themselves into. <laughs> this is like some makeshift team of some art school guys and one girl actually, or one woman that uh, was on our team with us. And uh, you know, we, we played our hearts out that night. We lost on the scoreboard, it was 94-49, I'll never forget. Uh, but for me, that was a huge win. Yeah, We actually got to some milestone of, we had fans there, of students, faculty, alumni, uh, administration, all under the same roof at the same time. And I got this little glimpse because at, at RISD, things get very siloed. You go into offering departments, you never see anybody again. Got it. Um, this was a moment outside of graduation where cross sections of campus would come together. And there was some magic to that. Mm -hmm. I felt that that was... Um, that that was uh, one of the benefits of the team, that it could really bring people together uh, outside of graduation. And so, um, you know, 
after that, it was all downhill. You know, we got more games with more colleges. <laughs> Lost worse. Started, yeah. <laughs> in some cases, we also started to win some, yeah, which was amazing. Oh, so cool. We got a coach the second or third year in, um, and uh, it was really an incredible, incredible feeling. In fact, I remember the moment when the basketball team was first printed in the student handbook as, as a, tr a tried and true option for students. Wow. So anyone who's thinking about coming to campus as a student, now if there were athletes out there mm -hmm. um, who were thinking about going to art school, they now had more incentive to come, come to RISD. And I met a lot of them who decided to come because we had a basketball team. And so, you know, it was this, uh, this wild startup. Um, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, I learned how to get people excited about, you know, volunteering their time to, yeah. to move an idea forward. And it was because I was in sports that I met Brian. Because while I was running basketball team, he was running the hockey team. Oh, and so we would end up so meeting much. each other in the office of student life, and he'd be like, who's this guy? Like, and he was looking at me saying the same thing. Who's this guy? He started a basketball team. <laughs> so we nurtured this, this friendship um, uh, during our time there, largely through sports, also through design, of course. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of mutual friends and, um, you know, skip, skip ahead to, uh, to senior year. We worked on a project together. And... We got paired up, and our, the output of what we created was so different than everybody else um, that I remember thinking to myself, wow, there's something special about this guy. And I really thought that if you put us in the same room, we could think of something big, even this is as, our, as seniors. Yeah. And so the night before uh, he's graduating, I was doing a five-year program, so I was there a little bit longer. Um, the night before he's graduating, he's about to move to the West Coast, and... Um, I had this, 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 this feeling was growing, and I felt like I just needed to tell him. So I, I invited him out for a slice of pizza. And classy. I kinda, and I look him in the eye, and I said, Brian, um, I think we're going to start a business one day, and I think they're going to write a book about it. Wow. And he literally just laughed it off, um, because who knew which direction life was going to go? But I had this premonition. I felt I just had, I needed to tell him. And uh, he moved off to Los Angeles. I finished out my, my last year of school. And... Uh, that was the, the early sort of um, uh, uh, coming together of, of him and I. Hey folks, I want to inject another quick word from our sponsor, FreshBooks. I want to give a shout out to those guys. Reminder, FreshBooks is a cloud-based accounting software created specifically for creators, freelancers, and the self-employed folks like you and me. They just launched an all-new version designed from the ground up that is fantastic. A quick Quick backstory, I once did for a whole year a paper ledger accounting and then did my own taxes, handwritten, without the help of an accountant or any software. It was horrible. I would never wish it on my worst enemy. And I just think about how much time and energy FreshBooks would have saved me in that year of my life. Uh, so simple to use. Couple of my favorite features. One is you can create an invoice in less than 30 seconds. Super, super easy. Another one is that, <laughs> this is related, you can see when your clients have actually viewed your invoice. So that removes that idea of hey, I never saw your invoice. And then the last one, which is a, a big thing nowadays, is you can literally with two clicks accept online payments like credit cards. Get those funds direct into your bank account so you can get paid faster. And importantly, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted trial for free to anyone who listens to this show. In order to claim it, go to freshbooks.com chase. And where it says, how did you hear about us? Enter the Chase Jarvis show in that little slot there and you will have access to that free 
trial. Well, I want to jump in just a second to starting the company because I think that's a really important milestone in your life, obviously. And in it is a lot of the struggles that I try and bring up with the show so people at home who are struggling don't feel like they're alone. Um, we'll get to the part you guys actually, it was a selling cereal, is that right? To, we'll get there. To keep, to keep, your, <laughs> keep your company alive. But I want to go backwards just for a second. My, my background also grew up as an athlete, went to college on a soccer scholarship, oh, nice. which was between yeah. football and soccer. And um, I was wondering if you felt any struggle reconciling sports and creativity. Because for me, mm. it, it, like, I always thought of myself as a really creative kid. And then at some point I realized, like, oh, creative kid is equals strange where I grew up. And... Uh, sure, the, no one asks any questions of the captain of the football team, so I'm just going to go do that. And it was really only later in, it was actually the skate surf punk culture of um, Southern California that mm. helped me reconcile sports and creativity together, like skating and um, expressing yourself in music right. and art and spray paint and all that stuff. And so that's how I found some sort of salvation. Did you ever feel any of those challenges? Or And yet I also still rely a lot on my sports background for pushing through things and discipline, a lot of that stuff. So what role did sports, do you think, play totally. for you? I mean, yeah. um, so many takeaways. You, you know, you, you're rarely dependent on yourself yeah. in sports, you know, whether it's, you know, there's some exceptions, singles tennis. Yeah, golf. Golf. Yeah. There's a few exceptions, but largely um, it sounds like you and I played team sports yep. a lot growing up. So you, you learn this sort of uh, depend, like, like mutual dependence on other people to reach a common goal. Yeah. I mean, what, what a life lesson, right? Yeah. Um, Certainly the self-discipline of practice yeah. and committing yourself to like, you know, for me with, uh, I'll take an example, baseball, like going to the batting cages, you know, night after night by yourself, right? Yeah. Putting quarters in the machine, kind of getting the swings in. Well, no one told you you had to do that. Um, but if, if you want to get, get to the next level, there was sort of this like, you, you had to put in the effort. And so yeah. there was this like, you learned to just put in the effort. Um, uh, 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 even if there was no immediate payoff. I so. think that's hard for some folks, this desire to immediately have um, the, the payoff, the gratification. I did this, and therefore I can see that. And Certainly in entrepreneurship, but also in art and in creativity, there's also there's this... Um, it seems so delayed. We hear 10,000 hours. Right. We hear 10-year <laughs> overnight success. We hear God. Um, you know, all those things. How, yeah, what role does, does practice play in being successful as both an entrepreneur and a, and a I, creator? I, this is a, such a good topic because I, I feel like there's a, such a parallel to practice in sports and preparing yourself for the game yep. when game time comes that there is preparing yourself as an entrepreneur for when the ideas present in front of you. For when the opportunity falls in front of you, um, it would be such a mistake, I think, for people to think that, you know, Airbnb, we just woke up and there was the idea. What, what people maybe don't realize is that Brian was, had his entrepreneur pursuits long before the company. And I was on this, my own lineage, my own path of constantly trying things out, like being in the gym of entrepreneurship. And the majority of things that I tried, you've never heard of. Right. The people watching right now have never heard of these things, but that was okay because it was like tuning up a muscle that you see an opportunity in the world and you're ready to make something of it. Like you're ready to, to have, like, again, transition something from your, your head into a sketchbook and out into the world. And the, the more that you can get in the habit of that cycle, Airbnb, like the, the Airbnb concept just happened to come along in this, 
this long lineage of other ideas that didn't go anywhere, but were exercises, practice, the batting cage yep. of entrepreneurship, right? So I feel like, you know, one of the best lessons that, that I've learned is just constantly be in that moment, that act of creation. Yeah. Even if it sucks, even if it doesn't go anywhere, even if nobody in the world knows about it, it's like, have an idea, get it down, and bring it to life. You can throw it away after that, but man, that muscle is so, so important to hone. Yeah, it's not a skill, it's a habit. It's like really there's this practice or a praxis, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, the aspect of repetition, um, and we, that's what we hear you know, in, in modern sort of web or whatever, iteration. Um, I, well, you, you said it, you, you shortcutted to, there are so many things that prepared you for Airbnb, so yeah. let's fast forward. You get back together with Brian at some point, yeah, right? So he's in LA. You're, are you out here still? Or, or, I'm, I'm or, still on the East Coast. Or, so, or, so yeah. if you want, I can talk about the company I started right after I graduated. Yeah, I want to know the one that that got <laughs> either the one that didn't get no, not got away. I don't know what. Whatever. I want to know about that one because I don't know. I'm learning a lot about you in this interview. So, you know, I started my first real company the day after, literally the day after I graduated. Um, this story starts, again, freshman year. Okay. So uh, at RISD, we had a drawing class every week that lasted eight hours. And the format for the drawing class is that you'd come in and you'd, you'd pin up your assignment from the week before and you'd literally spend the entire day critiquing or having a crit mm -hmm. of that drawing assignment. It'd be the teacher, the TA, and all the other students. And the studio is an art studio. It's hardwood floors, it's metal stools, Maybe you're lucky if you got the one wooden bench. It was very uncomfortable. So by like hour four, oh, man, you were feeling it. And by hour eight, everyone stands up to walk out the door to go back to our dorm rooms. And the funniest thing, everyone has this, this like bun print on the seat of our pants, right? All the charcoal dust and the paint and the ink from the studio surfaces. And sure enough, I look down and I have one too. And so I watch everyone walk out and I'm, I walk back to my dorm room and I'm thinking, you know, if there's gonna be a couple more years of this critique stuff, this crit, there's gotta be a better way. What if we had a seat cushion that could keep you comfortable and keep you clean? And so I go back to my dorm and I sketch this funny shape based on the bun print of the seat of people's pants. No way, this is amazing. And called it crit buns, right? <laughs> <laughs> a seat cushion for art school students, right? Um, I had no idea how to make a product though. This is just the first year of art school. Uh, so fast forward. It's now year five. I've done a dual degree in graphic design and industrial design. Wow. And I have a very clear idea of how to bring an idea, at least into a prototype. And so uh, the last semester, I make crit buns. <laughs> I love it. In, I, I make a, the 3D file, uh, and I make a, um, a foam model that's to scale, just to kind of shop it around, show students, hey, what do you think about this? I actually molded it in rubber and then poured in some polyurethane. Um, and then I had the first soft seat cushion, but there was only one of them. And this is kind of where it was, looked like it was gonna end because, well, I didn't have the money to take it to the next, next phase. Um, and that's when I noticed that there was a competition on, on campus for what's called the design diploma. It's a gift that they give to the graduating class. So I submitted the concept of Cripons and it won. <laughs> Crit funds won? It won. What were you competing against? I have no idea. <laughs> but it won. Which it. meant that the school was going to pay for the, getting Crit funds made for 800 graduating uh, uh, seniors. You know, f 
Um, oh the only God. only problem, this is great, right? This is this fantastic is news. This, this is, is a huge win. Here's the problem, Chase. They tell me this on May 1st. Graduation is on June 1st. I have a month to go from one prototype to 800 cushions. Oh my God. On top of two degree projects for both my majors, like thesis projects. And I'm like, holy crap, how is this gonna happen? Like this is, uh, I don't know how I'm gonna do this, but what an opportunity, I'm gonna figure out how to make this work. Wow. So, funny enough, I go to my professors to ask for advice, and every single one of them shot it down. They said, the timeline's too short, it's gonna take too long. I was like, okay, forget that, I'm gonna find another path. I get onto Google, I called every phone manufacturer on Google for the first 20 pages. I was talking to people in India, in England, in Texas, in California, and I got the same response. I said, Joe, uh, I love, love the passion here, but sorry, son, it's, it's gonna take you know, four weeks to make the metal mold and another eight weeks for the production of the foam. I'm like, we don't have 12 weeks, we have now three weeks. The clock <laughs> is ticking here. Yes. Um, and so the school's starting to get a little bit nervous. <laughs> and they call me and say, hey, Joe, what's going on here? And I'm like, don't worry, don't worry, I'm gonna figure this out. This is on a Wednesday, and they're like, uh, well, you need to tell us by Friday if this is happening or not. We'll give you till 5 o'clock. So here it is. It's Friday at 4 p.m. I still don't have an answer on how to figure this out. Everyone's telling me, no, 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 it can't be done. And I go outside the industrial design building by the, the canal in, in Providence, and I'm laying on the grass, and I'm looking up at the sky. I'm thinking, man, what an opportunity. My, my product is, is right on the verge of, of actually being made. What haven't I thought of yet? And I answered that question by thinking, oh, you know, the guy who runs the metal shop in the ID building, maybe he knows something. So I run back in and go, Steve, here's the deal. I need to figure out da da da. And he goes, you know what? Why don't you call uh, my friend up in northern Rhode Island? He runs a, a metal shop. So I get on the phone with this guy and I pour my heart out to him. Like, I give it everything. And there's this long pause at the end. And he goes, you really want this, don't you? <laughs> I'm like, can yes, you tell? whatever you can do. And he goes, all right, here's what I'll do. If you send me the file today, I'll move my, some projects aside this weekend, and I can ship the metal mold anywhere you need it on Monday. And I go, oh my God, I'm gonna call you back. So I remembered another conversation I had earlier in the week was a pool float company in Connecticut that told me, I said, Joe, we can make the, the foam in two weeks, but we, can't have to, we don't have time to make the mold. So you find someone to make the mold, we can produce the product. So I get on the phone, I call this pool float company. It's like 4.45 p.m. on a Friday. <laughs> I love it. The, okay. guy, the, the guy I picked up was about to leave the office to go home for the weekend. He was like clearly like on his way out, and I go, Kristoff, uh, it's Joe, yeah. And I pour my heart out to him, and he goes, you really want this, don't you? <laughs> I go, yes, whatever you can do. And he goes, all right, have him FedEx it to this address, and we'll take care of it. So I literally call the school back at like 4.58 p.m. to the office of student life. I'm like, guys, we got it. Here's where to send the invoice. Fax it over to this place. And, fax uh, it over. Yeah, right at the time. This is 2005. 2000 and fax. Yeah, 2000 fax, jeez. So <laughs> um, two weeks later, we had 400 red and 400 blue crit buns with screen printed with RISD-05 on the top, given out to the graduating class. Crit buns. It was, there's so many nuggets in that. Um, I'm gonna revisit a couple really quick. Asking for help. Yeah. I, I think that's a thing that so many creators feel alone in this world and they think that it's only up to them. 
Um, you know, you've already talked about co-founders and friends and peers and reaching out to instructors, but that was central to that. You couldn't do it yourself. No way. Right? Um, how about being told no? How many times were you told no? Too many. <laughs> Too many times, but enough times to, that you were able and willing to push By through. By incredible people, yeah. mind you. These are guys who had produced many products in their lifetime telling me no. Um, the fact that you emotionally were able to push through after all of that no and still perform, because you had to, I mean, this is like, you're, it's on the line, right? Yeah. Obviously, this is a microcosm of the startup world of basically any adventure, any venture that you're on. I'm, I was told no, or maybe, well, I've been told no certainly more in my life than I've been told yes, but it's the, the no, was there a world in which you were changing the world no, word no to not yet, or what was it about? <laughs> I mean, what was it about that? That because you clearly pushed through. So, in the face of all of this shit, like what what made you do it? Was it again? Go back to my earlier question. Are you just super stubborn, or you know what what is the quality that folks at home can take away from aside from asking for help? And, and oh, that was my narrative for it. But I mean, you obviously have your own. I, I've never really been described as stubborn, so I'm trying to think what else what the other quality is. Scrappy? Um, scrappy, certainly. Utilitarian? I think, you know, um, I, without sounding, you know, too generalized, like, passionate. Yeah. Right? Like, each of these stories, as I'm, even as I'm telling them to you, I'm kind mm. of looking back and I'm like, wow, like, I was really passionate to see that thing through. Yeah, talked people into seeing some sort of vision that they could contribute to or something bigger than yourself or... Sure. I think, you know, somewhere along the way, whether it was building the, the 16 chairs or, or, or making Kripons happen in you know, less than a month. Um, it was like people got excited because I was excited. Yeah. People would make exceptions based on the level of enthusiasm that I was communicating to them. And if I wasn't passionate about it, I don't think I would have communicated the same level of enthusiasm that would cause someone to change the projects you know, at their metal shop for one weekend or like change the production lines at the pool float company yep. to like make, make the 800 cushions in two weeks. <laughs> with, you love it. <laughs> um, so as I'm looking back, I'm, 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 I want to connect the threads here. And I think it was just a, a, an intrinsic passion to see these things happen and, and to not let someone else decide that for me. If they weren't going to happen, it was going to be because I couldn't do something myself. I hit some, some limit yeah. within me, but it certainly wouldn't be because somebody said no or somebody said, no, you can't do it. Um, uh, so I guess it was not... <laughs> Not trusting a no, or actually, if I were to reframe it, and this is very true for Airbnb as well, which we can get into, is that uh, I've learned over the years that no is simply an invitation to keep going. And you can accept it or not. You don't, you don't, you don't have to. Uh, but like, ask any entrepreneur, all the guys that have sat in this chair and talked to you. They've always reframed whatever's in front of them and turn it into a positive. Yeah. You kind of have to. Yeah. Because whether it's you know, a, a professor telling you it can't be done or very experienced product designers telling you it'll never happen in time um, <laughs> or investors <laughs> rejecting your idea because it's weird. Yep. Um, it's sort of like you can stop. You can, okay, well, geez, they said no, so I, should, yeah. oh, I shouldn't do it. Or you can be like, cool, well, it's an opportunity to find another path. 
That's one of the things that I love about this, especially now, maybe more than ever before, not maybe, certainly more than ever before. There's a million paths, right? Like mm. the, there's the art school path now, there's the creative live path. You can learn skills and experience in a place that we got no geek gatekeepers relative to even just five or 10 years ago. And that's another you know, really common theme, A for the show, B for the folks at home who are listening. Uh, and I think those handful of stories obviously illustrate that. Um, if you would have said at the beginning, I'm gonna have this guy I've never met who's a friend of a friend in Northern Rhode Island and the folks that are gonna manufacture <laughs> crit buns is a pool, a pool Float. floaty <laughs> foam company. Like, yeah. you can't actually make that shit up, <laughs> no, right? They you, made like the noodles, like the pool float yeah, noodles. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, you can't make it up. So, I, um, I love that. We, we, I, wanna, I wanna switch gears because it's sort of like the hit song. We've been holding out. There's so many folks at home who, um, your journey obviously is incredible, still very much ongoing. Um, and here you are sitting on top of this idea to use the word you just used that investors told you guys you were crazy, not dissimilar to your timeline on crit buns and uh, a lot of other things in your life, but here you are. How? How did it, how did it happen? How? Well, you know, it, it goes back to RISD as well because um, after I started Crit Buns, had that, got that product to market, the whole, the whole point of that, by the way, was just how do you get an idea to the shelf of the store? Yeah. And I, I cracked that code and I figured that out and that was, I was like, the equivalent of having 16 chairs in front of you was seeing Crit Buns on the shelf of the first store. It was like, wow, what else can we do? Um, and so I, f uh, I was looking for a reason to get to the West Coast. I remember coming back to like, yep. Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley is the internet, like yep. how you could have an idea and it could reach millions of people overnight. And I was always looking for uh, an excuse to go out, like some kind of little nudge. And I got one in the form of a design fellowship at Chronicle Books. Oh, yeah, it's an SF. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's an FS institution yeah. of book publishing. Um, I often think of them as like the Apple of book publishers. You know, very high quality, yep. um, very great design. And they, they invited me to come join them for six months as an industrial designer in a book publisher. Interesting. It's very, that's what I said. Huh. <laughs> so what does an industrial designer do in a book publisher? Uh, well, it turns out all of their high-end books, all the package design, the retail experience, and at the time their trade show experience. I was thinking about all of the, the fixtures and, and yeah. the, the physical environment. And so that brought me, gave me a reason to come to San Francisco, finally. Okay. Now, here I'm in Providence, um, moving out of my apartment. I'm packing my life into my Jeep. And everything else, I decided to have a yard sale and get rid of. So one, one day, I'm on campus, have you know, a whole sidewalk covered in my stuff, my art, my clothes, whatever. And um, it's getting towards the end of the day. I'm pretty tired. I'm ready to go home. When this guy pulls up in this red Mazda Miata, and he gets out, and I'm like, ah, oh, I just want to go. But OK, he's looking through my stuff. And he ends up buying a piece of art that I made, this poster, a silk screen. And we get to talking, and I learn that he's on a road trip across the United States before he goes into the Peace Corps. And it becomes very clear that this guy doesn't know a soul in Providence. And so, I, you know, I, something to me just says, why you know, we want to get a drink later? Uh, he says yes, and we meet up at this place called um, Custom House, this old, like an old-timey bar in downtown Providence. And we're having a drink. He's telling me all about his, his um, desire to, to do service in the world and learning all about the Peace Corps. And it's also getting kind of late. And so, as I motion for the check, I make the mistake of asking him, so where are you staying tonight? 
And he looks at me, and he makes it worse, and he goes, actually, I don't have a place. And I'm thinking, oh, man, <laughs> what do you do? Right? We've all been there. Yep. I've asked do that I question. offer to host this guy at my place? Because it's, it's, the hotels are probably closed in Providence. And I'm thinking, oh, man. And before I know it, I'm saying out loud, why don't you stay in an airbed in my living room? And then I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, what did I just do? So he comes back to my place. I set him up. I had this one airbed. I set him up in the living room, <clears throat> and I retired to my bedroom. And I'm laying there trying to fall asleep, staring at the ceiling going, it's a total stranger. Oh, my God. What have I done? <laughs> There's a stranger in my front room. I, yeah, I don't know if this guy's psychotic or not. Like, yeah. I just met him. Uh, I, th I think he's going to the Peace Corps, but I don't actually know if he's going to the Peace Corps. Right? And so I'm like, I'm having this, like, heart's racing. I'm like, and I, I leap up out of bed in the darkness, and I tiptoe over to the door, and I lock the door. Because there's a stranger in my living room. <laughs> oh, my God. So the next morning, we get up, and we go have breakfast together. And it turns out he's you know, not psychotic. Um, human. Goes to the Peace Corps, he sends me postcards while he's off out in the world. Um, turns out he came back, he's now a teacher in Chicago, and the piece of the screen print that he bought for me is now hanging on the wall in his classroom. And, what a, what a um, memento. It was, um, it was a moment. And so. Obviously, there's a seed in there, of course. Well, who it. knew? But uh, what there was in there was an airbed. Yep. Because <laughs> that's what I packed in my Jeep, drove across country. Um, get to San Francisco, have this amazing time at Chronicle Books, really see a wonderful culture from the inside out. Um, had an amazing leader at the company, Michael Carabetta. And um, I see a design team working at scale, all those things. Really my first impression of like, a company. And um, at a certain point I realized that, you know, if, if I'm really gonna take on creating a company like Things are getting a little bit comfortable. I took a full-time job at Chronicle. They offered me full-time, and I stayed, and it's now like a year and a half in. Meanwhile, I have Cripuns in the background, of course, nights and weekends. I'm running that. I've got a second web startup that I've created, wow. um, inspired by Cripuns. Um, I don't know if we have time to get into it now, but it was my first foray into really designing for the internet and really doing like production quality uh, web service. Okay. That was all premised on, the, the, the elevator pitch was, uh, Google for sustainable materials. Because in the process of making Cripuns, it was really hard to find any kind of environmentally conscious foam. Yeah, I and I realized the foam didn't exist and there wasn't a website to look for it. Well, I'm not a material scientist, I'm not gonna make a foam, but I do know how to make a website. So Buddy and I started this website that allowed any designer, whether it's architect, fashion design, uh, product design, uh, uh, whatever, you could connect with manufacturers that made these sustainable materials anywhere around the world. So here I am, I've got these two startups going, nights and weekends, I've got this day job, and I realize I need to pull the cord. Meanwhile, I'm also on the phone with Brian. He's living in Los Angeles, and I'm like, Brian, look, San Francisco is actually the epicenter for entrepreneurship. You have, you have to get here. You have to yeah. get here. I recruited that guy for a year, and he finally said yes. Um, uh, he finally had the guts, and I have to give him a lot of credit for leaving his life behind in Los Angeles with his, his friends, his job, packed his life into his Honda Civic, drove to San Francisco. We both simultaneously quit our jobs. And it was the, like, there was so much enthusiasm in the air. Like, you could feel it. It was like the band was coming back together, right? Yeah, <laughs> we didn't know what music another, we were going to play. Yeah, on the other coast. <laughs> we had no yeah. songs yet. We barely had any instruments. <laughs> but, anyway, but you knew. We knew, like, something, something would come out of us 
the, of the ping pong of us going back and forth on, on ideas. And so uh, that very same week that he moves up was the, the seminal letter in the mail from early onward. I'll never forget it, Chase. I opened that letter. It says, Dear Joe, your rent has just now gone up 25%. I drop the letter. I run to my online banking account. And I watch <laughs> as I have no paychecks anymore. And the rent goes like this. And we have a math problem. Yeah, it's, a, it's a very simple equation. <laughs> yes. Right? Brian had the same issue. And suddenly a, gray, a dark gray cloud forms over the apartment that we're living in south of market here in San Francisco. And we're like, oh, my God, we're going to lose our apartment. How are we going to make rent? And so it's like you just drop into RISD mode or creator mode. And you're yeah. like, okay, well, let's, let's just come up with ideas, right? And we had a bunch that probably weren't any good. And um, until one day, I'm in the living room on my laptop. And I'm looking up um, a design conference that's coming to San Francisco. It's the Industrial Designer Society of America. Okay. And it was the international version, which meant that there were 5,000 people or so descending on San Francisco. And on the website, it said, the hotels are sold out. We're sorry. And I saw this, and I'm like, ah, oh, that's terrible. The people want to come last minute. Where are they going to stay? By the airport? And I look up into the living room, and I'm like, we have so much space in our living room. And I'm like, I've got the airbed in the closet. So I run up, I pull the airbed out, blow it up, email Brian, say, what do you think about this notion of hosting designers for this conference in the living room? He's like, yeah, it's awesome. It's a great idea. Save on rent this month. Yeah, save on rent. And then we realized, well, we could actually invest in two more airbeds and, and rent three out for the conference and have three guests. So like, okay, well, now we need to get the word out about this. So um, we decided that we would call this not a bed and breakfast, but the airbed and breakfast. And we would design an experience. We'd pick people from the airport. We would cook breakfast in the morning. We'd give a map to the San Francisco and a BART pass to ride the subway. And so this idea was born. And we, we said, OK, well, let's, let's make a website. So Brian does the illustrations. I'm doing the, the coding. We made a four or five page website, very simple. And we were so proud of our website that we made in just you know, a couple of days. But nobody knew <laughs> this website even existed. Classic Silicon Valley Classic problem, Silicon right? Valley, right? <laughs> Beautiful product, of, of no which, people. <laughs> yes. By the way, it had the longest URL you've ever heard, airbedandbreakfast.com. 18-character URL, um, we're like, we have to get the word out. So one night, right before we went to bed, we email all of the design blogs that were covering the conference. It's Course 77, Swissmas, all the, all the guys, cool hunting. Um, and uh, it was like the next morning felt like Christmas. I mean, we literally walk up and we pull up at websites, and they're like, Brian, we're, we're at the top of, of the design blogs. And these headlines that said, uh, Need a place this weekend for the conference? Crash with Joe and Brian in their summer loft on airbedandbreakfast.com. And literally this idea that we had, you know, not a week or two earlier was suddenly broadcast internationally through these design blogs. So we started getting people from Brazil, from London, from Japan emailing us, I need a place to stay for the conference. Wow. And we got so many inquiries, people started sending us their LinkedIn profiles, their design resumes trying to become one of the lucky three guests. Um, uh, one of the other headlines, I'll never forget, said, uh, network in your jam jams. <laughs> Stay on air, bed, and breakfast during IDSA conference. Um, and the conference themselves emailed all the attendees and endorsed it. 
We even got some uh, local design firms to email their designers to put up their rooms. We had like four or five rooms for that one weekend. Um, and so it was incredible to see you have this harebrained idea that you have no idea. Pretty random idea, let's just call it what it is, right? It's out of survival. Totally out of survival, yeah. right? We need to make enough cash to save our apartment for that month. And <clears throat> you know, this, this whole premise was just seeing two unrelated dots and combining them in a new and a different way. Creativity. Like anybody could have pulled out an earbud for that conference and made earbudandbreakfast.com. There was no technical innovation, there was no patent filed, there was no special algorithm. It was just like, uh, there's a need and, and we have something that, that people want. Like, let's, let's do this and let's design it. Yeah. Uh, so we ended up hosting three guests that were all beyond our wildest expectations. Because, I mean, who's going to stay in an airbed in somebody's living room? Right. Who, the, like, what kind of person do you think would stay the, on? The crazy person. The crazy person, like, maybe in their 20s. Yep. Definitely, like, male. Like, what woman would ever right. come on? Probably low on cash. Probably low on cash, maybe recent college grad. Everybody who stayed with us was over the age of 30, wow. including a solo woman from Boston. So we had Catherine, Amol, and Michael. Catherine was a web designer from Boston. Amol was an industrial design grad student from India. And Michael was a 45-year-old husband and father who stayed on our airbed in our living room. Right? They completely blew our assumptions of who might want to stay in somebody's home. So they arrive. And we proceed to have the time of our life. I mean, we took them all around San Francisco to the farmer's market, the ferry building, to our favorite burrito place in the Mission. We took them to our friend's house party after the, con after the conference each night. We were cooking breakfast in the morning, cooking dinner in the evening. I mean, it was an incredibly social experience. You can imagine the contrast yeah. of traveling to a city by yourself, attending a conference, and each night retiring to the seclusion of you know, a somewhat generic room by yourself, maybe watching TV in the dark, <laughs> versus the really lively yeah. nature of our apartment, listening to music, cooking food, sharing stories. They were actually giving us tips on the web design. Catherine was actually helping us with web design in real time from our, uh, our living room. And, you know, it really had, it touched them, too. Yeah. They got to experience San Francisco through the eyes of people who lived here. It's, it's, it's an emotional, like that's one of the things that I've realized about Airbnb. It's an emotional experience, like getting excited about seeing your place. Because, I mean, yeah, there's pictures, and, and that's, <laughs> but there's an, and there's an emotional connection that you have with doing yeah. something different than you n normally would done, or being a part of a movement that is more ecological and interesting and curated and all these other things. And you even had that on day one. That's so powerful. Well, yeah, and the power of the design um, commonality yeah. that allowed us to trust each other mm -hmm. went, went the distance. That was really a really, really important part of all of it. Um, I want to wind so, it up. So you're, you're, yeah. you guys, you, you have this idea, and at this point, do you say, well, let's try and, you know, if it worked <laughs> once, let's try and do it five more times? Absolutely not. No. This was a weekend project that okay. was meant to save, save the apartment. However... I do remember saying goodbye to the guests, the door latch clicks close. I look at Brian and I go, did we just get paid to make friends? <laughs> yeah. That was incredible. So the gears did begin to turn very yep. slowly. Um, and that's when, that's when this is more serendipity in the story. Um, when Brian moved out, or sorry, when Brian moved in, it's because a, one of my roommates moved out. That roommate 
was a guy named Nate Bocharczyk. Nate I found on Craigslist. Uh, Nate happened to be a computer science major from Harvard. He moved to San Francisco to work at a startup. Nate was one of those guys that is in so many ways the opposite of me, but so many ways similar to me. He has a computer science background, he's extremely pragmatic in the best way. Uh, and at night, <clears throat> we'd both come home and be, be in the living room working on our own businesses. He had his side projects, I had Crip Buns and the other website. And I remember looking over my shoulder being like, wow, this guy loves to work. We share the same work ethic. Yeah. Little did I know, he was saying the same thing about me. I was like, if I ever need an engineer, I'm gonna go I'm tap Nate's shoulder. And he's like, if I ever need a designer, he's gonna talk to me. Um, so after this one weekend, uh, I go to Nate and I share this experience of these three guests. And I say, you know, we're, we're thinking about the next version of this. Uh, what do you think? And Nate's like, this is awesome. He loved the premise of using the internet to get people offline back to the real world. Um, so a few, like a month or two passes, we're now October 2007 is when we house the guests, November, December, we go home for the holiday break. And this is an important moment because you go back, I went back to Atlanta, to Georgia, and of course everyone's asking, what are you working on? What's going on in San Francisco? And you're like, well, you know, you're, what are you entrepreneuring out there? <laughs> <laughs> what you making? Yeah, what you making? Uh, and I remember uh, I didn't have a lot going on, but I did tell them about this air bed and breakfast thing. And something remarkable happened. People went very quickly into one of two camps. They either loved it and they're like, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard of. I would totally stay in somebody's home because I get the local nature. And some people were like, oh my God, what? You're weird. You did, you let who into your home? <laughs> no, thank you. And they went the other direction. And I actually think that was a pretty good sign. Yeah, that's the best like, sign. I think, I think in the early stages of an idea, it's important to have, uh, uh, to go to the edges, yeah. right? Like you don't have to so like serve everybody all at once, but like at least have people who get so excited and passionate about it. Uh, even if there are people who are like, no, you're crazy, that's weird, I'll never do it. Um, so Brian had the same experience. We came back in January, we're sharing this to them, like, yeah, it's, it's time to do this. So we, we call up Nate and we're like, Nate, we have this big idea. We wanna make airbeds for conferences. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is the big grand idea. That's great. We're gonna um, make hundreds. We're gonna make <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> so we're like, what's the next big conference? South by Southwest is coming up. The hotel's still out there. This is gonna be perfect. Foursquare launch there, Twitter launch there. We're gonna launch there. And it's gonna take off like a rocket ship. So we for two weeks we sprint, all nighters, tons of Red Bull. We get the next version of Airbed and Breakfast just in time for South by Southwest. And we had a total of four hosts and two reservations, one of which was Brian. <laughs> wow. Wow. Talk about a complete belly flop. Crickets. Oh my God. Like, it could have gone worse. So, you yo-yo a little bit, right? Success, oh, then lack of it. Um, you start sharing your idea. It's time to raise some money. You have enough traction now to, to, to I, want to, I want to go back to the concept of rejection. I also want to be mindful of our time. I promise we'll be out of here in a little bit. But to me, this is a very pivotal concept for the folks at home. For what I know about your story, which is there's so many details you're able to fill in for me here sitting sure. face to face. But what happens when you tell people your idea and they tell you you're crazy? Does it, does it go back to the professor at RISD, does it go back <laughs> yes. to, I mean, is this like, is this a recurring the thing? effect. Yeah, yeah, I mean, because you guys were laughed out of the room, oh right? We were. 
so from South by Southwest, um, uh, we, you know, it, it looks like the concept's not going to work. Mm -hmm. However, we've learned two very important things. The first is that exchanging money in person in somebody's home is very awkward. Yeah. Nobody wants to do that. Yeah. <laughs> So Australia, yeah, like oh, twenty four cash. Okay, here you go. Um, and the second thing is that people are like, "Hey, I want to use your site, but there's no conference. How do I do that?" And so we had this realization: well, maybe this is about travel, yeah. and maybe we bring the convenience of online payments into the equation, so we remove the awkwardness of that experience. And so we retooled that summer a third time. Uh, we relaunched for the Democratic National Convention in Denver, Colorado because there was a housing shortage of 100,000 people yep. coming to the city with 20,000 hotel rooms. The mayor wanted to open the city park so that people could pitch tents. Wow. This is a real issue. So we relaunched in time for that. And we're starting to get press now. We're in CNN. We're in Le Monde. It goes international. Um, we have 800 hosts in Denver. Like, this is crazy. We have hundreds of people using our service for that one weekend. Customer service is blowing up, which at the time was my cell phone. Yeah, right. Literally, people calling me like, "Yeah, I uh, can't find the address. How do I get there?" I'm like, uh, "Okay, yeah, make a left. Where are you?" Like, wow. It, like it was all hands on deck, but it was working. We saw this marketplace actually functioning. Yeah. Um, and so we're like, "This is a great time to raise money. Let's let's go out into the community here in Silicon Valley." So we got introduced to the. 20, 20 different people in Silicon Valley, a lot of names which you yeah, know and yeah. your listeners know. Ten of them returned our email, five of them met us for coffee, zero invested in our company. They all thought it was crazy, they all thought it was weird, it would never happen at scale. And they couldn't imagine a business model that was based on strangers staying in strangers' homes. Which didn't make sense, I mean, looking back, it makes a ton of sense, why? Because we've all grown up with this bias that we've been taught since we were kids, yeah. that strangers equal danger. And that was the hurdle that we had to overcome. People couldn't conceptualize beyond that bias. And so in the face of all that rejection, which uh, hurt, you know, that, yeah. that didn't feel good. Yeah. These are incredible, these are the guys that yeah. went behind YouTube and Google and PayPal and Facebook yep. telling you your idea sucks. You know, like. That go back, to your, go back to the Gareth factor. <laughs> go back to the Gareth factor. You proved him wrong though. Well, you know, it is a good question, like, what kept us going yep. in the face of credible rejection? The only answer that I have is that we had a personal experience of what it felt like to host people in our home. And the joy that we felt that we saw our guests take away from their trip was enough to say, you know, we just believe if we keep going. If people can see what we saw, they'll enjoy it as much as we did. So we kept going. Like, we just have to get to that point where people can get a taste and a little glimpse of what transpired in our apartment for those five days. And we think if they see what we saw, we think they'll like it too. And I think it worked. I got a speed round. Yeah. What role did photography play in changing the trajectory of Airbnb? Huge. Um, we might not be here today without it. Um, Put simply, like, photographs were the mechanism yep. by which to sell your product. So we're on our last limb. The DNC kind of fades away and we're just crickets again. You know, if, if only there was a political convention every weekend. Right. <laughs> it would be huge. It'd be huge. Um, we get on, on a, a kind of like a Hail Mary pass. We get into Y Combinator yep. in 2009. And we're one of 16 companies in Y Combinator. And this was like literally our last breath. We have a conversation before we get, before we, the first day we said, Brian, Nate and I, we sat down we said, 
you know, we'll, we'll give it three months of 110%. We'll put everything else in our lives aside. Um, girlfriends and side projects and even friends, like social life, yep. off. off. 110% focus. We became militant during Y Combinator. And we said, you know, if at the th- end of three months we'll evaluate, and if it's not working, we'll go our separate ways. But at least we'll know we'll have, we gave it our full yep. effort. And so we go into YC with that mentality, and um, uh, Paul Graham on the very first day gives us this incredible piece of advice. He says, go meet your people. Go meet your early adopters. Talk to them. Listen to them. Hear what's going on in their minds, which was based around his premise of make something people want. It's actually what it says on the t-shirt at Y Combinator. Make something people want. And this chase was a seminal moment for us because it completely was orthogonal to the, the myth of Silicon Valley, which so, is that yeah. you have to solve problems in a scalable way. That's the beauty of code, yeah. that one line can serve one customer, 10,000 or 100 plus. Mm-hmm. And so us and the dismal trajectory of our business in the early days of Airbnb, where there was no growth, flat as it could be, was us trying to code our way through problem, sitting behind the safety of our own computers. Paul Graham demystified that. He said, go out into the world. Leave the comfort of your computers. Go talk to your customers. And we're like, well, we don't really have many customers, but New York City's showing some promise. We had 30 hosts. So he looks at us and he goes, your, your early adopters in New York City? We go, yeah. And he goes, what are you still doing here? Go to New York City. And we're like, well, what are we going to do? So we brainstorm. As we're looking through search results, we notice the pattern. The hosts, while very earnest in what they wanted to offer, we're not the best photographers. Mm-hmm. And so the pictures were taken at night. The homes weren't really staged that well. There were dishes in the sink. The toilet seat was up, et cetera. And you're kind of looking at these photos like, I wouldn't really want to stay there. And we're thinking, you know, I've done photography throughout my life, took classes at RISD. Um, what if we just solve this problem ourselves? Let's actually go fly to New York for one weekend. We'll rent a wide-angle lens camera, and we'll just go door-to-door, Manhattan and Brooklyn, taking photos. And that's exactly what we did. This, like, folks at home, pay attention to this. This is the most manual, like, the most non-scalable <laughs> thing was the thing that actually unlocked your business. Yeah. Speed round number two. Um, advice that, uh, or what's something that if people found out about you, they would be surprised to know? <sighs> One sentence. I've seen Michael Jordan naked in person. Maybe the best answer of all time in that chair. <laughs> there have been many men and women in that chair that could be the best answer of all time. Um, something that you are surprised about every day when you go to work at one of the most successful unicorn, um, whatever accolades we can heap on you, multi-billion dollar, whatever. What surprises you every day when you go into work? The people I get to work with. I don't know how else to put it. You know, there's so many old adages of hire people who are better yep. than you, yep. which I've subscribed to. I think we, most of us in the company have. Yeah. And I, I feel really lucky because I get to work with some of the best. Again, seventh grade basketball coach. Yeah. Play with people who are better than you. Um, so there's so many lessons from your childhood. I, it's like, and you're, you're a beautiful storyteller and that, that they're just keep, there's this recurring, eternal return of the same concepts. Um, what's next? Oh boy. Well, uh, recently we announced that we are leveraging a new portion of the Airbnb platform to help house those who have been displaced in the world. Refugees. Refugees. 
um, about five years ago when Hurricane Sandy hit New York. Mm -hmm. A few uh, 10,000 plus people went homeless overnight. We had a host email us and say, I want to offer my guest rooms for free. How do I do that? At the time, you couldn't, but we said, mm -hmm. why not? It sparked this 24-hour engineering marathon where we reconfigured our platform to allow that capacity. Um, so within a matter of days, we had a few thousand rooms available to house those in New York. Um, we realized that wasn't a one-off, that there'd be other situations like that in the world. And since then, we've been able to uh, provide housing, sometimes in a matter of hours, to oh, you know, victims of typhoons and fires and floods in 65 uh, uh, different situations in 17 countries. And it's been incredible. This is five years of seeing this generosity of people who have a home and want to offer it to those who have been rendered homeless. And it's, something happened about a year ago where uh, we decided to shift. We said, what if we move from being reactive to being proactive? What if we tapped into the natural generosity of which there's now three and a half million people with a home on our service all over the world? Wow. What if we were to leverage that generosity on a daily basis for things that we can plan for and predict in advance? Certainly the topic of refugees mm -hmm. is one of those things. There's 65 million displaced people today. UNHCR predicts there'll be 325 million in 2044 in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. There'll be as many people, the population in the United States will be displaced globally. And um, we thought, well, this is something that maybe we can put a, you know, a tiny dent in, in our own, our own special way. Um, wow. So we've been building out the technology that allows anybody who has a spare bedroom down the hall to offer it to either someone who's been displaced by a natural disaster or someone who's getting resettled in the United States or uh, internationally in France and other countries abroad. And ultimately, what my dream is that in addition to growing Airbnb, which uh, uh, we're doing, is to, on the side, perhaps build the world's largest humanitarian housing platform that can help in, in these times of need. So that's, that's what's <laughs> next for us. You just don't stop. What I love about what we just spoke of over the last almost 90 minutes now, um, I've listened to a lot of interviews with you. I've been, we're both Greylock companies. We were at yeah. the, the CEO summit not too long ago, and you got to sit down with Reed. And I feel like I knew a lot about your story. I got more <laughs> gangster details in this 90 minutes. Thank you so much for sharing stuff I haven't heard elsewhere. Um, Ah, this is this is too good. Anything else before we go? What else do I mean? You've said it all, but what? what oh, there's there's a lot more. I mean, if people want to get involved in the, any of the the refugee work, they yep. can learn more by going to airbnb.com/slash/welcome. Beautiful. Thank you so damn much for being on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Chase, for having me. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platform. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.